You are listening to The Current Podcast, the official podcast of UC San Diego's IT Services Department. I'm your host, Miguel Rodriguez. Today is Wednesday, December 7th. Dear listeners, we have reached the final episode of the year. On behalf of all of us who comprise the Pod Squad, I thank you for your continued support as both participants in and consumers of this humble podcast. But do not fret, we shall return in January of 2023. And what better way to conclude yet another dynamic and impactful year for UC San Diego IT services than by welcoming our own CIO Vince Kellen onto the show. So without any further ado, Here's the interview with Vince. Well, you are all very excited now because we've got the year-end interview with our CIO, Vince Kellen. Vince, thank you for joining me on the podcast again. Glad to be here, Miguel, as always. So I've got a couple of questions to, to get us started, and I'm hoping that the questions I wrote up for you are somewhat uh, interesting and different than you might have gotten in the past. Mm-hmm. We'll see. But first off, since this is a year-end conversation, I just want to know some of your top priorities or projects, things that are most interesting to you personally for ITS as we head into 2023. Obviously, in the short term here, uh, meaning uh, the immediate next year, the student system selection and the student financial aid implementation and curriculum management selection and implementation are obviously first and foremost. But I have no doubt we're going to be successful with those. Um, they're not as sprawling and as complex and as difficult as uh, both the UC Path and the Oracle Financial Cloud. And I don't mean to make them smaller than they are. They're not. They're still going to be interesting and projects that are going to run into some issues. But uh, I have no doubt we'll be successful at it. Uh, that's probably first and foremost. But that really kind of takes second seat, I think, in terms of the next few years. And so I, I actually think next year is really about preparing for the next few years. And so I think that's going to be uh, in the realm of uh, machine learning, advanced analytics, call it AI if you like, uh, but ways of using information and technology to really, one, give staff some of their life back, two, help the university run better, three, improve the experience with the students and administrators. And actually, I'm, I'm much more excited about that than the, the finishing phases of our ERP implementations. You mentioned giving staff their life back. I, I wonder if you want to elaborate on that a bit. Well, it sort of goes into this notion of Kaizen as well. At any given time in our professional lives, we always feel like there is too much to do and not enough time or people to do it. And that will never go away. And by the way, if it does go away, two things have happened. Either you're very comfortably retired or something bad's about to happen next, meaning the organization is about to go under or it's falling under its own weight. But for very vibrant organizations that are really moving forward, like us, it always feels that way. And so rather than try to lament that, what I turn in my head is, okay, how would I use machine learning, advanced analytics, automation, alerting, to take time away from me, meaning remove things from my plate that could be automated better by the computer. So rather than me making decisions, why don't I review decisions the computer has made and correct the the few that might be an error? 
or perhaps a whole bunch of decisions that we make in the institution across the board in different areas could be auto-approved and done. Do I have to wade through a report to do things, to look up discrepancies, or can the system predict where discrepancies are likely to occur, or uh, just alert me when they are after it's made a fix and have me review the fix it made? So this notion of self-healing or autonomous systems, I think, is the next generation for us. And that's why we've been giving staff their life back. Well, you've definitely used some Kaizen language and concepts in that answer. And again, I'm going to go forward a little bit about Kaizen. First of all, I do think for some of our listeners anyway, a, a brief definition of Kaizen is necessary. But also, I did want to recall an SMT meeting from maybe 2018, in which I saw you get up in front of the SMTs and talk about and I will quote directly the sanctity of Kaizen, that, that those words and, and that language you used has stuck with me all this time. So I did want to get some of your thoughts about the sanctity of Kaizen and how that has evolved since 2018 to now. Yeah, and I said those, and I, and I still would stand by them today as I would in any time, to signify that we underestimate the power of incremental improvement, even small, especially if it's small and rapid and builds upon itself, especially when you step into something with the notion that, hey, I'm going to be building something or doing something. But as I do it, let me build into what I'm doing. How am I going to quickly improve what I'm doing tomorrow and the next day and the next day? versus blindly continuing what I do the first day into the second and the third day. And by sanctity of Kaizen, I mean, that is the path forward. I mean, learning is incremental. Learn learning is a continuous thing that you do. And so Kaizen literally means continuous improvement. It's meant to refer to organizations, how they improve themselves. But I take it to mean earnest Kaizen, or as Teichiono has said, life and death Kaizen, meaning Kaizen. Kaizen that we absolutely have to do if we wish to survive. When you get to a situation in life where your mind is such that, oh my goodness gracious, I am absolutely going to have to improve what I do tomorrow if I wish to survive tomorrow. When you get to that level of life and death Kaizen, now you're into real Kaizen because now you're into very focused, disciplined, clear, and aligning to what you want to get accomplished. Lots of Kaizen is interesting, fun, engaging, but it isn't of this, this focused, very focused sort. Uh, and Kaizen isn't just normally what you do with a group of people. You do it with your own mind, right? So, and I don't mean Kaizen as a way of avoiding critical thinking. In fact, just the opposite. You want to engage very sharp critical thinking early. You want to challenge that critical thinking early, continually. In fact, the moment after you think it. So if you think, hey, I'm going to do this integration between system A and system B, and I'm going to use this approach. The next action should be, okay, let's improve what I just thought of, even if I just thought of it 10 seconds ago. And then if I do that improvement, how can I improve that improvement that I just made 10 seconds ago? And how can I keep doing that until, okay, I'm running out of ideas for improvement here. Then how do I take a break and say, wait a minute, not good enough. How do I come back and do another round of improvement? So now you're getting into purposeful, sort of emotionally driven Kaizen, which is what I call the sanctity of Kaizen. And that's where it has to be. 
So it's not necessarily a substitute for incomplete thought, but a magnifier for very focused thinking. And I'll give you an example. In a lot of the activity hubs that I've participated with in the design, I usually say around version 20 or 30 of the spec, we're now getting close. Uh, in fact, if people look at the first version, we're like, oh my God, that stinks. And I mean, Kazi and I have done this a couple of times now, but we said, no, let's, let's wait till about 15, right? And so we go back and forth, sometimes a couple of times in the same day, uh, and then ebb and flow with other projects, we get back at it. And usually around version 20 to 30, it's starting to sing. And what we're doing in that is we're continually challenging the very thought we committed to. So I have a, a number of thoughts, and I'm going to try to distill them into one single question. And, and we're going to stick with Kaizen for a second, because mm -hmm. you definitely have a lot of uh, approval for this thought. <laughs> but um, okay, so one, you talked about the life and death type of Kaizen. An another thing that that makes me think about is instead of thinking of Kaizen as something in addition to our daily workload, it is something that kind of flows and is seamlessly integrated into our day-to-day. -day. I will say, and it's not- Let, just, me, let me back up there. If uh -huh. you say Kaizen is something in addition to your daily workload, you ain't doing Kaizen. Yeah, exactly. So I agree. And that that leads to my next thought. And I do want to clarify here this. I'm not speaking specifically of ITS or UC San Diego, but right. my history of working in IT, if a change, and that's why change management comes up, but when a change is introduced or a question comes up about, you know, a possible wasteful action within a process, I have heard the words, this is how we've always done things, or this is the way we've always done things been thrown across. So that does seem like an obstacle to the way of thinking that you're talking about. And as CIO, I think this is where leadership comes in. I'm wondering how you overcome that obstacle with an organization this large. Of, um, that's yeah. Well, that's a personal obstacle people impose on themselves. Let's think about where that comes from, right? Where that comes from is the feeling inside the person that I'm now going to have to spend energy that I really don't want to spend, right? So I'm going to say, hey, we've always done it this way. Why are you changing it? And that's kind of the wrong starting point. The starting point should be, if I've done it the same way yesterday, why aren't I changing it today? And then after going through the 142 reasons quickly and then say, okay, we'll continue the same way today, maybe that should be the starting point. Um, but it really is around energy, right? So if status quo is about preservation of energy, change is about spending energy. And so humans by nature are hardwired, like all other animals, to conserve energy spend. Thinking is hard. It actually takes 20% of our caloric budget. Our, our brain is a pretty expensive engine. And so when we say our brain hurts when we're thinking, that's literally true. And so the, the human instinct is to say, okay, I'm not going to try to think too hard because it's going to tax me. However, we have an abundance of calories. That's not an issue for uh, homo sapiens in 2023. And so we can actually think the reverse and say, how can I think a harder, deeper thought for a more sustained period of time? In fact, how can I do so perpetually? And if I can do that perpetually, then maybe every problem becomes much easier and more trivial to deal with. In fact, scientific research says that's absolutely true. The difference between an expert and a novice is in how much mental energy the expert spends relative to the novice. And guess what? The expert spends a fraction of the energy of the novice. They're extremely efficient in their thought, but that comes from 
constantly exercising this kaizen, this, this learning on an ongoing basis. So how do you overcome the inertia? Uh, well, you, you get folks who, who you know, the, the future is paved by people who have that energy. So work through those people to get that done. Uh, and then start to bring on your fellow teammate who seems to be in preservation of the status quo mode uh, and bring them along. And then in time, the rest of the unit will come on board. But there's there's no way do you wait for everybody to get to that level of, of focus, forward focus and energy. And by the way, people say, oh, my God, that sounds very hard. Well, actually, it's not. When you get there, everything is easier. Everything is easier. Maintenance is easier. Daily operations is easier. Everything is easier. And that's the, the sort of the hurdle that people have to get through is how to, how to lean into that energy spend, lean into it perpetually, lean into life and death Kaizen all the time. And then along the way, achieve a sort of a lightness of action that's far more freeing uh, than the prior state. Where do you see ITS on the spectrum headed toward your vision? I think we've done very well overall. The mastery of some of the basics of Lean Six Sigma and continuous improvement and the basics of Kaizen. And we're executing, in many cases, what I call consultant-grade work. But I think there's a, a level beyond. And that level beyond is getting into this urgent life and death Kaizen and, and a Kaizen that's felt inward. Uh, in my conversations with some of my senior managers, I, I pointed out, you know, Kaizen is something people think they do to something not them. Meaning there's a process, but it's not me, it's the process, right? Or it's a, it's a piece of technology, not me, a piece of technology. Uh, that's still skirting the real issue because Kaizen is personal. You have to operate from a, okay, how did I do it yesterday? And could I improve on it tomorrow? in order to make an effective contribution to the more social aspect of Kaizen. So I think we have to now cross that bridge from the interesting uh, Kaizen or continuous improvement now into the uh, deeply personal and, and uh, you know, very critical uh, Kaizen. Uh, but by and large, I think we're in, in, in good shape. Uh, and, um, and so I'm looking, that, to me, I think that's what the future is. And the reason I'm leaning on this is if you look at machine learning, Machine learning and neural networks are about iteration, like continually, uh, like multiple times throughout a day, right? And so the top data science shops are tweaking algorithms on an ongoing regular basis through almost as fast as Kaizen as they could stand. And, and so that's what's going to be needed to master this advanced analytic machine learning future. Yeah, I love how you brought those two concepts together. I uh, also wanted to bring this up, and we're really sticking with this topic, but when I talk to my colleagues about these topics, one thing that I have either talked about or have noticed that is difficult for some folks is thinking incrementally rather than a process improvement project being something major. You know what I mean? I feel like oh, yeah. it's easier yeah. for someone to say, I want to change this huge million dollar thing instead of coming up with incremental small things every day that could be done. Yeah, the latter is more powerful by mm -hmm. tenfold, tenfold, tenfold. So do you have... Just, yeah, I mean, I, that's just so true in so many mm -hmm. aspects of life. Excellence is doing a, t a million tiny things perfectly. Do you have any advice 
for changing the mindset? Yeah, just tell people, hey, let's think, everybody say, let's think small. <laughs> Don't be afraid to think small. The first question I had written out to ask you was about ways you had seen your role as CIO reshaped after 2020, you know, the, the turn of the decade, right. if you will. Um, I think I'm going to stick with that a little bit, but yeah, after everything fine. we've talked about, I am wondering if you have seen your role reshaped, how have you applied some of these concepts we've been discussing for the last 25 minutes to that role uh, in, in the reshaping of it? Yeah, there's two aspects to my role and, and probably the one that people think of most is to help this unit, ITS, our unit, do well. And so, you know, that's a universal, the CIO role. But a second part of my role is to have an impact on others um, outside of our unit. And that's a, uh, you know, it's a social process. It's, it's one of incrementality, no question. And it's built by one relationship at a time. So it's a constant review, you know, engage, review, decide on, on a different approach. And it's a just a constant on that. So in in dealing with as an executive with fellow executives, I have to be very responsive to where they're at, where they're going, where I'm at, where I'm going, and making sure that the gears aren't churning into each other. Uh, so at a times it looks like we're moving slower than we should be, but partly because we don't want to get too far ahead of, of some of our uh, our peers in the in the business realm. Um, but and some of it is uh, just normal you know, ebb and flow within an organization. So certainly in that second part of my role, which is how do we have an impact more broadly outside of our unit? Uh, that's definitely almost the exclusive land of incrementality and adjustment and Kaizen, constant learning and reapplying. And it goes oh, like this. Okay. I'll give you an example. When I was at Kentucky, I met a gentleman who uh, was, I had a coworker who was head of, of the student success initiatives. It was fantastic, Mike Mullen. And he took a, a job offer out uh, further east. And I was like, oh my gosh, Mike's leaving. What, you know, what are we going to do? We need a good partner over here. And a gentleman named Ben Withers, who was the chair of the art department, became that new person. And our relationship at first was a little frosty. But in the spirit of Kaizen, I'm like, you know, I got to make this work. And so we just made regular appointments at the local brew pub and uh, continued conversations. And that grew into a good friendship and a good partnership that extends to this day as he's over in Colorado State as Dean of uh, Arts uh, and Humanities at, at Colorado State. Uh, but it started with this notion of, I have to approach my professional relationships with the same sense of improvement and same sense of, okay, what did I do yesterday and how can I change it tomorrow? Because I have to make the outcome happen. So I got to change what I'm doing. I can't necessarily rely on the other person and just simply gripe about the other person. I myself have to get off my butt and do something a little different. All right. I would like to change course here a little bit. We've been talking a lot about, you know, almost philosophically uh, about with what how we approach problems within ITS. But here's something a little bit more about how ITS works with the rest of the world now your role definitely has a lot to do with funding, making sure that we are financially viable. And I'm wondering if you can talk about being an advocate for ITS in terms of how much money we receive and how you make it seem more like a priority if it ever does not seem like a priority to someone who's not within ITS. 
Funding for units is an institutional priority, not mm -hmm. my priority per se. My job is to advocate for a unit that will maintain its capability, right? So I have to guard against derangement or uh, degradation of the ability uh, that would totally interfere. But by and large, the funding issues are a chancellor-led and, and chancellor and cabinet-led set of priorities. So my job is to make sure we're not compromised and make sure we're best positioned to receive what we genuinely ask. Now, th this institution is a very difficult budget environment, and not because we're financially unsound, we're not. It's difficult because we are financially sound. We do sweat a lot of budget decisions. Pradeep sweats budget decisions. Pierre sweats budget decisions. I do. We do. Uh, because we are trying to maximize the spend as much as we possibly can. Uh, so a lot of people assume that it's sort of, a, I got to fight against others to get money. That's not the way it really works. Uh, the way it works is the institution has to allocate across many, many competing interests uh, and do so trying to at least address what the cabinet and most importantly Pradeep thinks is our top priorities. That said, for the you know funding requests we've received, we're you know we've gotten all of them. So it's really the batting rate I'm more concerned about because if you're constantly asking and never receiving, sooner or later you're going to be asked to leave yourself because you're not helping anybody. And so I'm I'm careful about that. By nature, I'm super frugally conservative on this. I'm say conservative, just super frugal. I just hate waste, as you can kind of tell from this kaizen. So it, it's like, hey, how can we figure out through our ingenuity to beat all the odds of funding. Another question I had was about staff development plan, a robust staff development plan for the IT department. I'm an extremely selfish learner. By that, I mean, there is a never any point in my life where my boss set my learning plan. That was mine. That was mine. Nobody but nobody except me was going to determine what I am going to learn. And so you've given that same. Well, not all people are like that. I'm, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but, but, how, but, but if you're into this personal life and death Kaizen, you absolutely kind of have to, right? Now, why am I like this? You know, I witnessed uh, the degradation of my parents' business and the final bankruptcy or dissolution of it in, in, a, in, a, in a chaotic end. And so I saw firsthand how Kaizen is extraordinarily deeply personal, and if not done, has tragic consequences for many human beings. So I bring that urgency to my daily life around it, never forgetting those extraordinarily painful lessons as a boy and, and teenager. Um, and so how do you get people to say, hey, I have to take charge of my own life and develop my own learning plan? Now, it can work in concert with a supervisor or a peer who says, hey, you're not a little, you're not, you got to get, get a little more direction in your life here. Why don't you consider X, Y, Z? Uh, and so that's where the community of peers and the supervisor comes in to help set that direction. But at the end of the day, a human being will only learn that which the human being wishes to learn. So... The individual has to want to grab it. So the question I always ask people, is it more important to have access to knowledge or to have a thirst for knowledge? The latter is way more important because yeah. it will always find access. That curiosity 
that curiosity. Well, it's, I mean, coming from an education environment, which we, you know, we're definitely in, um, the, the, the lifetime learning concept is something that, you know, I, I, this is my 15th year working in educational technology. And so hearing people have a lifetime learning concept or, or as part of their professional life is kind of amazing to me. It's one of the things I love about working for ITS because we have so many different groups learning from each other, like yeah. uh, Toastmasters, for example. Yeah. And it's it's just wonderful to see yeah. how much there is. Yeah. And IT is, is a fit. I, you know, I love the career. I loved it my whole life. I've loved the industry. I love technology. It's like endless play stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you love learning, I mean, there's no shortage of it here. <laughs> it's not a question of what, you know, it's how do you select? Yeah. And so it's fantastic from that standpoint, and it can help anybody. It doesn't matter what your background is. If your mind is capable, you're going to get good. You know, I spent my first years trying to bang in, bang myself into the industry because I didn't have the educational background. And quite frankly, I applied for jobs that I probably shouldn't have applied for because I was kind of ignorant. But I, I, I just was so curious about it, insanely curious about it, and kind of still am today. Well, I'm glad that you got to talking about some of your your personal history, because I want to stay on that path for this final question, which I, I do want to know when you started to see yourself as a leader or someone who is destined for a leadership role, if it was always there or if there was some defining moment that set you on a path toward leadership. Um, not really. In fact, my sense of it is, does a duck think about the water when they go in the water? Not really. They're kind of made for the water. Um, now that said, uh, earlier in my career, I kind of stayed away from supervisory and management roles and leadership roles within industry. And partly because I was just having too much fun with the tech. And I was like, oh, I'm going to give all that up. No, I didn't have to give that up just because I got to that level. I could still continue to play with tech. I just got to be very precise about it with my time. And it probably was, you know, certainly in my about 20 uh, when I decided to uh, run for editor of the student paper at my university I was at where I said, I, th I said, I think I can do that because I really don't think that person is doing it now. I don't think they're really good at this. And gosh, <laughs> come it, we need somebody who can make things work here. <laughs> and so it, was, it wasn't so much around, I need to lead as it was, we just need to fix things around here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and then the uh, gradual learning of that, partly with my Taekwondo teaching, which mm. is definitely a very strong leadership role over time, I got to reflect a lot more about it. And so then I kind of very formally committed to that as I, somewhere in my early 30s. So, but it, it's better to say I had been doing all sorts of types of leadership well before my formal commitment to it, in much the same way a duck finds itself in a lot of water before knowing it's a duck. Well, I think one of, per, personally speaking, one of the key components of good leadership is recognizing when the people who work for you or with you are 
qualified to take their job and run with it. And that that's something that I find very exciting here yeah. at ITS is yeah. how many and, people are doing that. Yeah, and, and, and you know, in my martial art teaching, we spend forever getting the student to become a black belt. And what we're looking for is a student who can take it, own it, do it, and getting them to that point where it's it's they're really on fire now and so all of martial art teaching is to get that sense of ownership and autonomy 100 percent in the mind of the student and the reason is in a real self-defense situation there is nobody else it's you so you 100 own that situation you 100 own whatever you're going to do in that situation so all of our focus on training is getting you completely ready technically, but part of getting you technically ready is getting you emotionally knowing it is you, you alone, and you're going to do this. And so we spend a lot of time as Taekwondo instructors trying to make sure that our students are getting to that level of life and death Kaizen, so to speak. Well, I think that that is a very powerful way to wrap up uh, this end of the year discussion. Thank you so much, Vince, for talking with me. I hope that... Yeah, it's been a great year. We didn't talk much about COVID, but uh, I'm glad it's mostly behind us. It will still live mm -hmm. with us in a way. I think it's helped us out in some big ways. It's prevented some challenges that we still have to go through, especially in education tech. Thinking about K through 12, uh, I think yeah. the lesson learned there is, is online is not good. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means we have to do it better. So I'm looking forward to the, what the future is going to bring post-COVID, especially with hybrid and digital uh, experiences. Well, on that note, one of the things I want to start following on this podcast is the Pathways Project coming up, yes. uh, which is very, very relevant to what you just mentioned. So um, yep. that should be interesting. And uh, until until next time, hopefully we'll, I'll see you at Process Palooza, if not sooner. And Yep. <laughs> And thank you, Miguel, for some engaging questions. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Have a great afternoon. Bye. I sure hope you're enjoying this podcast. Remember to let your fellow IT services staff members know that this podcast exists. Get everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you can get your podcasts. This podcast is a collaborative effort, and we want to hear from you. If you have any ideas for podcasts or topics, send them to me at its-podcast at ucsd.edu. That's it for today. Keep an ear out for the next episode of The Current Daily.